It's official. Elon Musk is the new owner of Twitter. The widely reviled billionaire immediately began to prepare layoffs of thousands of workers, reportedly starting with a mass firing, perhaps as many as 25 or even 50% of the employees of the company. Under this system, so-called democracy, or what we might call the dictatorship of the rich, one of the main ways that people in society communicate with each other can become the private possession of a single ultra-wealthy capitalist. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Welcome to this episode of The Socialist Program. We are excited to have Professor Richard Wolff join us again for our regular weekly segment where we talk about the biggest stories related to the economy, the state of the working class, and the crimes of big business. I'm your host, Brian Becker. The Socialist Program brings you content three days a week thanks to the support of our patrons at patreon.com forward slash The Socialist Program. We appreciate all of your support and encourage you to become a patron today if you enjoy listening to this show. Richard Wolff is the co-founder of the organization Democracy at Work, the author of many books, the latest being The Sickness is the System When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself. Be sure to check out all of his work at rdwolff.com. That's R-D-W-O-L-F-F.com. Richard Wolff, welcome back. Thank you, Brian. Glad to be here. Anyway, it's kind of mind-blowing that Twitter, the commons, the place where people communicate, billions of people rely on it every day. There can be a transaction made, and Elon Musk, I guess the richest man in the world, coming from a family who's, while his father previously owned an emerald mine in Southern Africa, anyway, really something that Elon Musk, a billionaire, can take possession of Twitter. But one of the themes of our show, Richard, and one of the themes of your discussions is that this system is so skewed and, in fact, so dictatorial in spite of what it tells itself and tells the population about the nature of its democratic norms that this, in a way, isn't that shocking. But the impact can be pretty profound. Absolutely. And I like the way you put that, despite our protestations. You know, the United States, from its beginnings, took a certain pride in not having a king. You know, our independence was from King George III, and very pointedly, not only did we fight a war to become independent of the British Empire, but we fought a war, we said, and we're not going to mince words to get rid of all kings, not just George III. We didn't replace King George III with King Thomas Jefferson or King George Washington. We pointedly got rid of kings. But nothing is more like a king than Elon Musk. The king becomes a king because he was born to somebody who was a king before him. 
Nothing about his life or his achievement made him king. He was king because of something extraneous to governing a society, namely being the progeny of a particular king and a particular consort or queen of that king. And ditto it is with Elon Musk. He doesn't become the director, the owner, the operator of Twitter because of anything having to do with Twitter, anything having to do with mass communication, anything having to do with governing human beings. He has it because he didn't buy it. It really should blow your mind. And he buys this company and then becomes its king. King in the sense of a person with nearly absolute power who's not accountable in any way to the people over whom he wields power. That's what a king was and did. And we have allowed the CEOs of our mega corporations to be kings in their little realms of business. And if you're a big company and you have tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of employees, then the king can not only tell you what to produce or what technology to use or where the production will be undertaken or what will be done with the fruits of the labor when it's sold as a product. It can go further. He can fire you. He can take away your livelihood. He can throw your family, your neighborhood, your community into a panic whenever he feels like it. He's interested in making more money. Okay, that's what he does. And so if that means firing 10, 20, 30, 40% of the people, he is free to do that. The mass of people who lose their job are not free to have decent security for themselves and their families. The communities that depend on those workers and their families are not free to function in a decent way to take care of their people. The freedom of the king always came at the expense of the king's subjects. And so it is with those kings we call CEOs. It is a mind-boggling example of not just the absence of democracy in the workplace of capitalism, but the actively anti-democratic reality, anti-democratic structure, anti-democratic feeling that capitalist enterprises breed into the societies where they're dominant. And then there's the whole second issue, as you raise it, that why in the world is an institution that's by its very definition social under the control of an individual? I mean, either we believe in democracy or we don't. If social institutions erected by the community, one way or another, and existing to serve the community, how would they become the plaything of the autocratic tiny number, in Mr. Musk's case, one person to decide what the conditions of communication amongst the whole society of this planet should be operated. That we permit such a thing either means we don't know or care what democracy actually means, or we simply don't get it and are too afraid to ask the obvious question. Richard, one element of this takeover by Elon Musk, even though 
He has purportedly 160 or 170 billion dollars in assets and much of it tied up in stock. But again, for people who are maybe listening to this show for the first time, the difference between a billion and, and a million is quite a big difference. And those of us who don't deal in billions don't really have a sense of how much money that really is. He has 160 or 180, sometimes 190 billion, depending on how the stock market goes. But he didn't really finance the takeover of Twitter with his own money. Part of what he got and part of this deal was $14 billion in bank debt. And there is estimated about a billion dollars due in interest payments on that $14 billion of debt, $1 billion in interest in the first year that he has possession of Twitter. Now, Twitter profits are not a billion dollars. So one of the elements of this sort of deal, the machinations, is that Elon Musk, in spite of all of his money, has incurred extra debt for the company. And now he wants to lay off 25, fire 25 or 50% of the workers at Twitter, the ones who keep the company actually moving, so as to reduce costs because he wants to be able to pay the interest to the banks. So you have the king, the opposite of democracy, as we've learned it, also connected to high finance, another kind of kingdom, the kingdom of high finance. And, you know, if one looks back at the at the fall of the French king, Louis XVI, and his queen, Marie Antoinette, part of the problem in that kingdom was the kingdom was broke, and people found out that it was broke, and they could only restore the finances of the kingdom either through more taxes, going to war and conquering new territories, in other words, plunder and loot and pillage, or debt to the banks. And so when you think about the anti-democratic character of a kingdom or of a monarch, it's also in modern times connected to this other kingdom of high finance. Yes, and it's very, unfortunately, very common when company A or millionaire or billionaire A buys a company, they use their own company, their own personal wealth as a kind of collateral, very common, to get banks to come in on the deal, to lend them a portion of whatever it costs to buy the company they have their eyes on, which means that after the transaction is done, the company is now connected by debt in a way it wasn't before. If it had been successful before in reducing or eliminating its debts, the act of being sold by whoever owned it to a new owner usually goes together with the new owner using borrowed money. So that now the company has to make enough profit to pay off the interest of the principal over however long the loan lasts as an extra burden. In other words, the new owner has to squeeze more profit out of the company to pay the interest involved in acquiring the company. And then you begin to see very often, there's nothing new or unusual about this, a tremendous squeeze being put on 
Workers get laid off. Workers expected to work longer for less money or the same money or cheaper inputs being used to make more profit because they have this urgent debt from the bankers from whom they borrowed the money. Same thing, by the way, if you issue stock to buy a company, now you got to pay dividends to whoever bought the stock that you sold to get the money to buy the company. It's a game in which the rich load up with debt to pursue their dreams of being the king even bigger or the king of an even larger company. That's their dream. And the beauty of capitalism is allows them to borrow money whose interest is then squeezed out of the mass of the working class, which, as happens so often in capitalism, is left with the bill to pay for all of these shenanigans. It's just like a medieval peasant beginning slowly to understand that the taxes levied on that peasant by the local feudal lord is to raise the money so the feudal lord can have an even greater chateau or castle in which to live, to engage those funny men in the armored suits on horses clashing in the sports that these lords could watch. And who pays for all of this? Yeah, the people who are squeezed every day to make the money that allows the big shots to play. The whole idea of democracy, of ending these systems of economics, was to get out from under this, was to let the mass of people become free. That's what they meant, free from the taxes, free from the squeeze of the employer, free to live their lives. And what is happening and what we have to understand is that capitalism is proving yet again to be just a different form of the domination that masters worked over slaves and lords did over serfs. Now it's employers over employees. But who's playing, who's making the money, and who's footing the bill is the same old story unless and until we say stop. I couldn't agree with you more. You know, going back to this issue of access to debt, I remember Donald Trump saying when people were saying, well, you went bankrupt and you had so much debt. And Trump said, I love debt. I love debt. And I'm thinking, okay, (laughs) let's help explain to the audience, especially for people who are new to the show, why would somebody love debt? Obviously, you know, the people in the United States who make up the majority, that would be people who go to work, people who have to work people who are living either from wages or salaries, or if they've retired or have become disabled, they're living on some kind of fixed income. Debt is very scary because, you know, you can be destroyed if you can't pay your debt and you have to pay it. There's no way out. Student debt, for instance, and the student debt level is now $1.6 trillion that students have accrued because they wanted to go to college the way student debt is structured, you can't actually ever get away from it. You can't declare bankruptcy on it. There are people who are collecting social security because they're older than 62 years old. They're still having part of their income garnished to pay old student debts. It doesn't go away. But for another sector of society, 
debt, in fact, is a privilege. It's kind of comes with the privilege and the power of being a capitalist. And so the debt is something they embrace because other people will pay the price for having paid the debt off. In this case, Twitter employees, not Elon Musk, will pay the price, the burden of having accrued more debt. But let's just talk about the stranglehold of debt in capitalist class society and how it really is viewed so fundamentally differently depending on your class position or your class status. Yeah, debt has been a a midwife, I believe that's Karl Marx's phrase, a midwife of capitalism and of endless amounts of individual capitalists. They could do with borrowed money what they did not have enough of their own money to do. And debt really is in general when you want or need to do something and you don't have the wherewithal to do it, you are then tempted to go and borrow the money so then you can do it. And then, of course, you discover, if you're not very farsighted, that this thing you did, borrow, has a residue. Namely, you have to pay it back and you have to pay interest between the time you borrowed it and the time you finish paying it back. And these burdens, as you rightly say, don't go away. They don't adjust in most cases. You have to pay on the nose at that certain date this amount of principal and this amount of of interest on the outstanding debt. And let me give you a couple of examples because they're so gross that they begin to help you understand. Not only do we have the corporate game in which most corporations, when they merge with or take over or buy out another one, use borrowed money and therefore impose on the company after the deal is done this extra new burden that whatever else the company was doing, it now has to make enough money to pay back the loan and the interest on the loan that was used to acquire it. And it isn't just the employees at Twitter who risk now being squeezed, having their income reduced, having their job taken away from them. But believe me, all the people that are using Twitter Mr. Musk is going to be looking at how can he get more money out of them to pay back his loan and to pay the interest on it? How can he maybe charge more for Twitter users one way or another, charge more for the advertising done via Twitter, and therefore, with the advertising having to pay more money, the companies that do the advertising will raise the price of whatever they make to cover the cost of paying Twitter more. You're going to see another boost to inflation coming out of this kind of behavior. And remember, it's done every day here in the United States. We permit the tiny minority of employers, even tinier when you look at the big companies, to engage in this activity that burdens us all but without any accountability. They're just free to do it. All you need is the CEO and a couple of convenient cooperative bankers, and bingo, you can pull it out. Here's another example. Most of the little countries of the world, Asia, Africa, Latin America particularly, are in desperate straits economically now. Why? Because their societies 
were in trouble for one reason or another, COVID really hit them, or the crash of 2008 and 9 really hit them. So they, uh aha, here we go, borrowed their way out of it. Many of them didn't have to. They could have taxed corporations and the rich in their own country, but they lacked the political will to do it. So they borrowed. Eager New York bankers and French bankers and British bankers were there to lend them money. And you know who has to pay back the debts of Paraguay or Mali or Malaysia or any of these other countries? The people. They have to be taxed to raise the money to pay off the debts. Who negotiated the debts? The government, the elite of the country. They often lined their pockets with big fat commissions that came out of the debt. Meanwhile, the mass of people are going to have to pay the taxes desperately to keep themselves from being declared defunct and unable to borrow anymore, and therefore in even deeper trouble. And what does the country do if it's going to have to tax its people more? Well, it's going to be overthrown by angry people. That's one risk. Here's another one. Because they're afraid to tax their people, you know what they'll do? They'll create a a national crisis. We can't buy fuel anymore, and our people are going to be very sick and hope that some international agency helps them. They become desperate. That's where many of them are now. And here's the third and, in a way, the grossest example. Rich corporations and rich people in America donate the bulk of the money to the politicians. In exchange, the politicians lower taxes on them. The greatest example in modern history, 2017. Huge tax cut under President Trump, a gift to corporate America and the people it makes rich. But now we'll follow the bouncing ball. When you cut taxes on corporations and the rich, that, of course, means that those taxes are no longer coming into the government to run the programs that the government is supposed to run. Everything from the Defense Department to Social Security to anything else. You're not raising the money if you give tax breaks to corporations. Well, then what does the government have to do? It could cut all the services, but then there'd be a hue and cry from the mass of the people and from corporate America, which want the government to keep providing the services. Yeah, but how is the government going to provide the services if it's cutting the taxes on corporations and the rich? Here comes the answer. They borrow the money. Those politicians borrow the money. That's why our debts go up. But I told you it was the grossest example. So here comes the grossest example. From whom does the government borrow the money? Answer, from the same corporations and rich people whose taxes the government just lowered, which is why the government needed to borrow. So for corporations and the rich, look at their no-brainer opportunity. Instead of paying taxes, which is what the government could and should have done, they get to not have to pay the taxes. That's why they have politicians like the ones we do. And instead of paying the tax, they lend the same money to the government, which has to give it back to them in a few years and pay them interest between now and that time. 
This is the greatest ripoff that corporations and rich people have ever had the opportunity to do, and it's been going on literally throughout the history of the United States, and particularly at a large scale in the last few years. It is outrageous. The government doesn't need to do this. If it taxed corporations and the rich, end of story. It could do what the government needs to do. It wouldn't have to borrow a nickel, let alone reward the very people whose tax cut forced the government to borrow. Once you understand this, then you understand that the capitalist system is now exhausted because it has abused this system for so long and for so much money that even the rich, after they save their taxes, are hesitant to lend to a government that's so deeply in debt. That's what happened in England three weeks ago. Liz Truss, the new prime minister, promised to cut taxes on the rich Yep, again, while spending a bit more money helping the British people deal with their absurd risen prices of fuel, and the very people whose taxes it's cut turned around and really did her in. That's why she's not the prime minister anymore, by telling her it's too risky for us to lend you the money that you just gave us by cutting our taxes, so we're not going to do it unless you raise interest rates enormously. And that was such a blow to the finances of the government that Liz Truss became the shortest lived prime minister of England in that country's history. Amazing story, 45 days in power, and she's out because she got caught trying to do this debt hustle one more time. Elon Musk was born in apartheid South Africa. He was clearly the beneficiary of the apartheid system. His father owned, as I mentioned in the beginning, an emerald mine in Zambia. When Elon was born in South Africa in 1971, Nelson Mandela was still in prison. The ANC was considered a terrorist organization, the African National Congress. South Africa was, of course, at that time backed by the U.S. government, which continued to back the apartheid government for almost up until the very, very end. Elon came, Richard, to the United States, again, as a non-citizen. He deferred a PhD program in the late 90s. He started a company called Zip2, and he was able to get capitalist investors. Again, he came from money. He's getting capitalist investors for his Zip2 internet company. He was a young man at the time. And investors realized that Elon didn't have a green card. So they helped Elon get an EB5 investor green card in 1997, allowing Elon to become a U.S. citizen in 2002. So here you have the South African apartheid beneficiary, naturalized U.S. citizen, takes control of Twitter, the commons. He's also chairman of SpaceX, and SpaceX has formed a private-public partnership, so-called, with the Pentagon. And the Pentagon is basically privatizing big parts of space exploration and space technology 
at the same time that the Pentagon is trying to gain nuclear and military primacy against America's so-called rivals or enemies in outer space in violation of the Outer Space Treaty of 1967, I'm looking at a headline from NBC News from two weeks ago, three weeks ago, Musk and SpaceX asked the Pentagon to take over funding Starlink satellite network that has helped Ukraine fight Russia. Okay, this is perfect, Richard. Here it is. Elon Musk and SpaceX, his company, have asked the U.S. Defense Department to take over funding his Starlink satellite network. I mean, they're pumping up hundreds and hundreds of satellites all the time. He owns them, but he wants the Pentagon to fund them, Richard, because they're being used critically by the Ukrainian military during the war with Russia. I mean, when you take this whole thing, what's happening, SpaceX, Twitter, South Africa, the apartheid regime, the role of the banks, the role of the military industrial complex, again, using taxpayers' money of almost $900 billion a year. Again, these capitalists who are treated as celebrity entrepreneurs and great thinkers and wise, sagacious individuals who have done so much to make so much money. I mean, when you think about their actual role in society and the power and privileges granted to them by the capitalist system, and this is a system of capitalism that's fully militarized and intends to militarize outer space and is militarizing outer space. When you put it together, you can't find a system that's actually less democratic or even less corrupt. Anyway, I'll give you the last word. Well, the last word comes in these last two days. I'll pick up on the story because there's one more chapter to it. The satellites that Musk has let the Ukrainian government use is being used by the Ukrainian government as part of their war against Russia, which is now ongoing. And so a couple of days ago, the Russian defense ministry did what is typical in a war and informed Mr. Musk and the United States that since this private individual, Mr. Musk, is now participating in the war effort of the Ukraine, the satellites that the Ukraine military are using to wage the war become military targets, just like anything else that the Ukrainians are using to fight the war becomes a military target. And and said so. And the United States State Department immediately, or the White House, I believe, immediately said, if you do anything to those commercial satellites, there will be a response from the United States. So we are literally being drawn into war by the private decision of King Musk to meddle his little company into a global warfare, drawing in the two superpowers, Russia and the United States. If we weren't horrified by the return of kings to plague us, as we've been discussing, then we ought to be horrified at the thought that literally something as fundamentally threatening to us as nuclear war could also be set off by what this private individual had in his mind when he decided to make these satellites available to the Ukrainians. It's just, it's extraordinary what amounts of power the mass of the American people will give up while still wanting to call themselves a democracy. 
Richard Wolff is the co-founder of the organization Democracy at Work. He's the author of many books, the latest being The Sickness is the System, When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself. Be sure to check out all of Richard's work at rdwolf.com. That's rdwolff.com. You're listening to The Socialist Program. We'll be back tomorrow. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and watch video episodes of our in-depth show, The Real Story, every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on YouTube with our partner, Breakthrough News. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker. Thank you.